Well, as we continue and kind of finish up the discussion of Paul's remarks about the resurrection, I want to remind you of those first century burial practices that we talked about last week because it's really important to appreciate um, from a Corinthian point of view. You'll recall that the body, after having died, was wrapped in linen and then covered with perfumes and oils and placed inside of a tomb. And then a year to two years later, they would go back into that same tomb where the body had mostly decomposed. They would take whatever flesh and muscle remained and clean it off, take the bones and and place them in this ossuary or this little bone box that would then remain in the tomb. It's important to, to understand those practices to better appreciate the Corinthian difficulty in understanding a bodily resurrection. How can there be a bodily resurrection when that body no longer exists? You can understand the difficulty. It's a justifiable question, don't you think? And so Paul is trying to explain that that our earthly bodies are not made to exist in a heavenly home. Remember we talked about that seed last week, that, that seed that looks nothing like the flower that it will one day become, but there is a miraculous transformation that takes place. Well, the resurrection is exactly the same. It is a miraculous transformation instantaneous as Paul will describe this morning in our passage so before we look at that together let's go to the Lord in prayer father if there's anything that uh, I think you would hope that we understand in order to live life well and endure through difficulty it's the hope of the resurrection the promise of things yet future that uh, we are convinced of that we live in belief of So this morning, I pray that this truth becomes crystal clear in our hearts. That it isn't something that we just uh, think about this morning, but it is something that impacts us every day. The reality of what you've made possible through the victory we share in faith with Christ. So Father, that's our desire to understand that this morning. And so we pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter. 15, Uh, we will pick up where we left off last in uh, verse 50, so if you would look at that with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, Paul continuing on the topic of the resurrection says, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. As you think about those words, and in particular as you think about inheritance, I want you to think about relationship. For example, the only people who have rights to a family inheritance are blood relatives, right? So some foreign person who lives in a different country cannot claim rights to a family inheritance. And in the same way, Paul says in verse 50 that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Because as descendants of Adam, 
we are foreigners to the family of God. Scripture actually says that we are strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Nothing we can do in the image of Adam, corrupted by sin, will qualify us for divine inheritance. We are a foreigner who has no right to that divine inheritance. It's true in terms of relationship, but, but also in terms of, of lineage. Look at what he says in the second half of that. He says, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. It's a very similar idea here, but Paul is kind of having the idea of, of things that are passed down from, from one generation to another. Now, this will give you an image that you won't soon forget, but one of the things that is true for my family that in the men of the Sapisa lineage share in common is some very impressive skinny calves. You like that? Yeah. Would it be a distraction if I just left this up? It's true for all of us. You look at my dad, he's got skinny calves. You look at my son, he's got skinny calves. We've got skinny calves. It's just part. Of, but it's true for all of us, right? We, there are genetic dispositions that we all inherit from one generation to the next. Well, Paul takes that same idea, and he says, if you go back far enough, the truth is we're all descendants of Adam. And guess what we inherited from him? A sinful nature. Because of Adam, we are all born with a heart of sinful rebellion. It was true for you, it's true for me, and it's true for all mankind. And so neither our relationship nor our lineage does anything to qualify us to be those who inherit the kingdom of God. We are foreigners and have no rights to a divine inheritance. The kingdom of God is eternally off limits to sinful humanity. Which is why he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Unless, unless God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Look at verse 51. Paul begins and says, behold, I tell you a mystery. Paul describes it as a mystery, and one of the things I want you to understand about this statement is he's not talking about a hidden secret. This is not like Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail, okay? This is a truth that has eternally existed, and it is something that is progressively being revealed and is ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me show you how that unfolds. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is going to talk about this promise that was made before the world began. A promise that has been mysterious only because it has been progressively revealed and then ultimately fulfilled through the personal work of Jesus Christ. Look at, uh, let's start in verse 9. He, God, made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him, Jesus, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. The idea here is that the purpose of God was ultimately and completely fulfilled 
in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Colossians says he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Look at how Paul continues in verse 11. All, uh, in him, Jesus, we also obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. See, God made a way for us to obtain an inheritance that we do not deserve, one that we have no right to. There's, this is not something that we earn. It is something that is gifted to us based on a hope in Christ. And here's the key. Look at verse 13. In Him, Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise and glory of His name. This is it. The mystery that is revealed is how the sons of Adam become the children of God. That's the mystery that has been revealed. And the passage explains that it's not anything that we do it is instead something that is done for us through the person and work of Christ by the death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That's why John can write in the beginning of his gospel, to as many as receive him, to them he gives the rights to become what? Children of God. As a child of God, that's how you, as a son of Adam, become a rightful heir to the inheritance of God, a divine inheritance that none of us deserve. In our passage, Paul explains how that promise is ultimately fulfilled. Look at, go back to our passage and let's read in the second part of 51. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. The, verse 52 describes it as in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. That word in a moment literally means in an atom. It's the, the smallest conceivable segment of time, but it is instantaneous. It's not a progression. There's no preparation phase like a, like a purgatory. This is an instantaneous, miraculous transformation. And it happens when the signal is given. And what's the signal? It's the trumpet, right? And, and all throughout Scripture, that trumpet announces the second coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In that moment. He tells us that both the dead and the alive in Christ will be changed, resurrected by God's power to live eternally in the kingdom of God, giving us an e eternal inheritance that none of us deserve, but we receive by faith because of what he accomplished for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, look at verse 53. 1 Corinthians, verse 53. It says, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, 
And this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then we will come about the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Look again at verse 53 where Paul describes what must happen. And then in 54, he tells us what will happen. He's already said the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. The mortal cannot inherit the immortal. Something has to change. God must intervene. And then he goes on to explain what God will do. What promise was made on our behalf. It's a promise that was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And to better appreciate it, let me give you an illustration. I want you to think of it as uh, death like a bully on a playground. Okay? Death is like a, like a bully on a playground. He, he just has his way. He does what he wants. It's his territory. Why? Because he's undefeated. Anybody who's ever stood up to him gets bludgeoned. They don't stand a chance. And so nobody wants to do anything with death because he's in control. It's his territory. But let me ask you this. What happens when somebody finally stands up to the bully? Who are the ones who are most interested in what this potential hero might do? The victims, right? Those who have been bullied. Those who have been under the control of death. Well, death is the bully. Jesus is the hero. And we are the victims. The ones who should be most interested in what Jesus can do. Because if he wins, then those who stand with him in faith also share in his victory. In verse 54, Paul quotes a passage. It's actually a passage in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. And it tells us that death is swallowed up in victory. That passage is the prophet speaking of a promise made by God. And it's in the present tense because it's as if it's already happened. It is something that will certainly be fulfilled. But we know that that was ultimately accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He did what no one in humanity could have ever done. And those who stand with him in faith share in his victory over death. That's what Paul wants us to understand. But until that day, here's the reality. Death stings. The question in the second part of verse 55, Oh, death, where is your sting? Well, in my view, it's right here. It's on this side of heaven. And those of you who have ever experienced loss know that this is true. You know that the pain that comes when you lose someone you love. Someone you care about. Somebody that you're separated from. And because we're the body of Christ and we are called to to weep with those who weep, in some way we've all experienced that reality, that, that pain of loss, the separation from those who have died. And yes, it stings. But our belief is that even though death stings, it will not win. 
reminds me of when Terry and I had first gotten married. We had a small house over in Tech Terrace on 27th Street. And one day I was out mowing the lawn without a shirt on. I could get away with that back then. Today my family would shuffle me inside and say, Dad, you have to wear a shirt. Don't ever do that. But this particular day I had a shirt off. It was hot outside and I had a push mower that I was mowing around our clothesline in the backyard, which is basically a galvanized steel pipe. And as I bumped it, I realized that I just disturbed a yellow jacket hornet's nest. And before I knew it, those things can fly a lot faster than I can run, and about 20 of them attached themselves to my back. And did it hurt? Absolutely it did. <laughs> did it last? No, it didn't. And neither will the sting of death. Because in the end, Jesus wins. Look at how Paul explains it in, in verse 56. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. He says the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. And all of us, because of the fact that we are descendants from Adam, know the painful sting of sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And to be honest with you, it's important to feel that pain. It's important to, to have the recognition, or recognition that, that something's not right. And, and thanks be to God for the law, the, the commandments that help us discern and see what is right and what is wrong. To identify sin as sin, exposing right from wrong. And Scripture speaks clearly to that. Turn to Romans chapter 5. I want us to look at a passage together. Romans chapter 5. Here, Paul speaking to this reality of sin that plagues all who are descendants from Adam. Listen to what he says in chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Since all have sinned, all will die. Death is undefeated. 100% of the human race has fallen to his rule and reign. That's the painful reality that we have inherited from Adam. But look at how he continues in verse 16, 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death Reign. The point here is that sin existed both before and after the law. Death is undefeated. Before the law, there was no command to break. But did sin still reign? Yeah, how do we know? Everyone died. It's the reality that we know and we live with. Like the bully in the playground, he's undefeated. That is... Until Christ comes along. Look at what verse 57 tells us. Go back to our 
passage in Corinthians and look at verse 57. This is one you want to remember. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Guess what? Death is no longer undefeated. He has one loss. Because Jesus overcame the grave. He did what no human being could have ever done. He conquered death. He won. He beat the bully. And those who stand with him share with him the victory over death. Now, I want you to notice in that passage, you notice where it says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. That's a present tense. It's not just some future reality. That, that passage is telling us is that that victory actually begins right here and right now as a response to the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. Our victory begins now. How do we know that? Because we're no longer slaves to sin. We've been set free from that. Sin is no longer our master. Do we struggle with sin? Yes. Does it own us? No. Not if we have faith and trust in Christ. We're no longer separated from God. How do we know that? Because the Scripture tells us that His Spirit dwells within us. Your body is a temple of God. His presence dwelling within you. We do not fear death. We know that it is a reality, but we don't fear it. Why? Because we know that we have victory through Jesus Christ. Like Him, we will be resurrected, changed in a moment. When He gives the Word, we will be instantly transformed into a glorified body, living eternally in the presence of God and sharing in the inheritance that we have been qualified to receive through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. See, it was then that God is going to fulfill that promise to make all things new. Grant loves to talk about this, the, the new heavens and the new earth. And our new existence within that new heaven and new earth. The promise of our inheritance once and finally made complete. And so to answer the question of, of, okay, so this is true, what difference should that future hope make in our lives today? Well, verse 58 answers that question. Look at that again. Therefore, based on the truth of the resurrection, my beloved brethren, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. Based on the truth of our victory in Christ, based on the truth of our standing with Him, knowing that what He accomplished has made, been made true for us, here's how you should live right now. And there's really three things that I want us to, to unpack and understand together. Number one, be steadfast and immovable. Number two, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Number three, standing strong in our convictions of faith. Knowing that our labor is not in vain. Those three things are the application to really all of chapter 15. 
So if the resurrection is true and that's where we're setting our hope, then how should we then live? Let's talk about those together. Being steadfast and immovable. The picture I have in my mind is when we had boys brigade, we had this balance beam. The, guy, the boys remember this, okay? Had this balance beam, and you stood up there for a jousting game holding what looked like an oversized Q-tip, okay? Soft on either end, and, and the, the, the object of the game was to knock your opponent off the, the balance beam. Here's who typically won. <laughs> who typically won was the one who stood up there and immediately took a defensive posture. Legs spread wide, knees bent, ready to take a blow. The ones who typically lost were the ones who were lazy, they were just kind of standing up and, and, and were distracted, and boom, before they knew it, they were getting knocked off the beam. Well, I think that's the same picture of what Paul was calling us to in terms of how to live in light of the resurrection. Be steadfast and immovable. Take that position. You, you're going to get attacked. <laughs> Be ready. Don't be distracted by the world around you. Don't get caught lazy because your enemy knows your weak spots and he'll hit you when you're not looking. So be steadfast and immovable. Colossians 1.23 says this, Be firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Now does that sound familiar? Isn't that Paul's point here in Corinthians? Hasn't he been going over this? over and over again, don't lose sight of the main thing. Be steadfast and immovable. And, and what is that main thing? Center your life around your walk with Christ and His work in your life. That's the main thing. You see, there's nothing more important than that. Not popularity. Not Wealth, power, success, new home, new car. None of that matters in comparison to the main thing. Who Christ is and what he's doing in your life. You drive a stake in the ground and you be convinced in your heart of hearts that there is nothing in life more important than your walk with Christ and his work in your life. That's how you're steadfast. And immovable. But not only that, we're not just there to hold our ground. He goes on to say, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Well, what immediately comes to mind for me is the students who just got back from Mexico City last night. <laughs> These are high school students who had a lot of options of how they might spend their summer. And so to go to a foreign country among a people whose language they don't speak living in homes with host families who probably are, their entire home is about the size of their bedroom, to, to live that life with them and to, to invest themselves in, in working and in painting homes and, and doing a basketball camp, to, to share the love of Christ with, with boys and girls, men and women who live in that very poverty-stricken place. That's what it looks like. Abounding in the work of the Lord. Standing together for the cause of Christ. Here, here's the image that I have in mind. I know you've seen this before in the Olympics. When they have uh, those, I think it's called sculling, but it's those long, skinny boats where they have 10 or 15 people sometimes in those boats, and they're all rowing in just beautiful synchrony, right? Have you seen that before? 
I mean, everything is synchronized together. It is beautiful to watch as they almost uh, effortlessly move through the water. But I want to ask you something. What happens if one of those rowers just all of a sudden decides, I don't want to do this anymore, and just lets go? What's going to happen? A couple of things. One is they're going to immediately slow down because that has a dramatic effect. The other thing is now they've got more people rowing on one side than they do the other, and they start veering off course, don't they? One of the things that we have to understand is that we were, commu- we were designed to live in community. We were designed to stand together. We were designed to be in the boat rowing with one another. And if any one of us quits, we all feel it. We all feel the effect of that. Because we are so, by God's design, tightly and appropriately connected with one another. And so it's very important to understand that that isolation is an enemy. Because when the enemy separates us, that's when he attacks us. We have to stand together, working together for the cause of Christ, abounding in that work of the Lord. And that's what we're called to. That's part of how we live in the hope of the resurrection. Immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, and then lastly, Standing strong, being firm in your convictions, knowing that your labor is not in vain. The first thing I want you to know about that passage is that it's labor. It's work, it's toil. The Christian life is not a cakewalk. God didn't promise us an an, an easy and trouble-free life. Again, ask the students as they spent time in those host families. Was their life easy and trouble-free? No. But did you see within their life a hope and a joy to persevere even in the midst of difficult circumstances? Yeah, I think you did. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. He says, they hated me, and so you can expect by implication that they they will hate those who represent me. We don't endure based on wishful thinking. We endure because of strong, immovable convictions. It reminds me of uh, uh, a man by the name of Admiral Admiral Stockdale. He was a prisoner of war in the Vietnam War, actually the highest ranking prisoner of war, who was asked after he survived the brutality that he underwent, how did he survive when so many others did not? His answer was interesting. He told this interviewer that the reason that that he feels like he and others survived when so many did not was because those who didn't survive continued to set their hope on things that would come and go. They would tell themselves, we're going to get out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and go and it didn't happen. They'd say, well, it's it's going to happen by Easter. And then Easter would come and go and it didn't happen. His conclusion was that eventually, after experiencing these repeated disappointments, They eventually died of a broken heart. Unrealized expectations. Here's what he said, and I'm going to read this because I want you to hear it exactly what way he said it. Listen to this. He says, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you cannot afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the brutal facts 
of your current reality, whatever those may be. And so for us this morning, I want to confront some of those brutal facts that I know exist in our lives today. Some of you are living with the brutal fact that you're battling cancer. Some are living with the brutal fact that you're dealing with multiple sclerosis or cerebral palsy. Some of you deal with the brutal fact of of divorce or of having lost a job. And here's the danger. Don't be fooled into believing that, boy, if I just had a a happy marriage, then everything would be great. If I I just had the perfect job, then, then everything would be great. And then you keep having these unrealized expectations because that's not what fills the void that ultimately exists in your heart. You're going to die of a broken heart unless you learn to have a faith that you will ultimately prevail in the end. Not because of anything you do, but because of what was done for you. Your victory is in Christ. And when you stand with Him, that's the only way that you have hope of things yet future. Like Jesus, I want to remind you, there will be a day when instantly, in the blink of an eye, in the fraction of an atom, you will be changed. Changed from this body of flesh and bones that was never intended to live in heaven. You will receive from God the promise of a glorified body, living eternally in the presence of God. In a new heaven, and a new earth, where there is no sin, there is no death, there is no pain, there is no mourning. And if that's true and we believe that, then we should live this life with an immovable faith, abounding in the work of the Lord, standing together as brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that our labor is not in vain because our hope is not in this world. But we live because he died. And that's the promise that we have for eternal life. His victory becomes ours. So here's what I want you to do this week. You ready? I want you to write this down. Three things. So be easy. Pick, share, pray. PSP. Pick, share, pray. I think all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, can look at those three areas. Being immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, laboring together so that we know that our toil is not in vain. And probably in each of those areas, there are things that we know that we can grow in, right? For some of us, maybe like me, <laughs> I can learn to, do, to grow to be less movable. That my faith can be stronger and less shaken. I love that passage in Psalm 62. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold, and in him I will not be greatly shaken. I want to grow in that. I want to become that person. So that may be my one. For some of you, you have existed in isolation. You're standing alone when you were made to stand together, living within the body of Christ. And so maybe part of what your takeaway is, I need to be involved in the relationships within the body of Christ that God has called me to. Because what did we learn in chapter 12? He placed each and every one of us in the body just as he desired. 
He gifted each and every one of us with a manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. So that ultimately, as we work together, we fulfill the purpose of Christ in our world until He comes again. And So maybe your commitment, maybe the place that you want to grow is to be more involved in the life of this body. Or, or wherever God calls you to be. But to be involved. And for some, it may just be the reminder that, look, there's some brutal facts of life that we live in today. And my hope is not in those facts going away, but in the promise that I will prevail in the end because of my faith in Jesus Christ when his victory one day becomes mine. And maybe we need to be reminded by that. So pick one. Pick something that applies to you personally, and then I want you to share it with somebody. Just tell somebody that you know, that, that you love, that you want to, to communicate to, and just share with them what it is, the one thing that you really, you really want to grow and mature in, and then pray together. Hopefully, they'll be able to do the same, and you can pray for one another. But pick, share, and pray. Make sure that what we talk about of such great significance on Sunday morning doesn't end here. Take it into your daily lives and see what it looks like to live it out Monday through Saturday, right? With that in mind, let me close this in prayer. Father, uh, wow, chapter 15. I think when you inspired those words, all of heaven rejoiced. <laughs> when that mystery was revealed of how the sons of Adam, corrupted by sin, become children of God through faith in Christ because of his sacrifice on the cross. And Father, we live in a world where we're easily distracted, sometimes lazy, and the enemy knows it, and so he can knock us off balance. But Father, this morning, as a church body, we want to confess and pray together that our desire in our heart of hearts is to be immovable and steadfast. That we want to live life together, standing with one another, abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that there is a window, and that window is small and closing. Because there is a day that you will return when that trumpet will sound. And in that moment, in that instant, we will be transformed. We will experience the reality of your victory now made our victory. And we will live eternally in the presence of a loving God who has graciously redeemed us through the forgiveness of our sins by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, may that impact how we live today. I pray for each and every person in this room that they will pick, that they will share, and that they will pray through these things as they grow to center their lives around that stake in the ground, that place that they refuse to be moved from, what it means to walk with Christ and be changed by His Spirit at work within us. May that be our hope and our steadfast commitment. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, that we pray. Amen. Have a great day.